are listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Today we are welcoming Mr. Don Strew, Honorary Consul of the Republic of Kazakhstan in Alberta, President, CEO and Director of Condor Petroleum, and a member of the Serba National Board of Directors. Don has over 35 years of experience in the oil and gas industry, for the past 13 years of which he has been President and CEO of Condor, as we mentioned, a publicly listed international energy producer with activities in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Turkey. Prior to that, Don spent 22 years with Chevron, working in Angola, Indonesia, uh, Nigeria, Canada, and the U.S., managing both onshore and offshore assets. So welcome, Don Strew. Oh, thanks, Nathan. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Well, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to host you on the, the, the Serba podcast today. Now, we know that you grew up in Alberta. Could you share with us some of your memories of growing up in the heart of the New West, as it's been called? Uh, what, what was your childhood like, uh, uh, and, and what brought you uh, eventually into the energy sector? Calgary was a fabulous place to grow up. I was really fortunate. With a city less than 80 kilometers from the Rocky Mountains, I spent a lot of time camping and fishing throughout my childhood. There was never a shortage of clean air and, and fantastic views. I've watched Calgary expand from a city of less than 300,000 people to Canada's third largest. It's now you know, close to 1.3 million people. Obviously with strong ties to the energy industry and, and the, the bear market over the past eight years, Calgary's been hurting. It's frustrating with Canadian oil and gas being the world's most responsible energy developed and Canada being a leader in things like carbon capture uh, and storage technologies. But you know, unfortunately, office vacancies in Calgary right now are, are north of 30%. So it's never been so quiet in, in the city core here. You look out my window and you can see lots of lots of offices, but not lots of people. Hopefully that'll turn around as the province continues to its, its efforts to better diversify. Well, I'm getting ahead of ourselves in the talk here. I'm going to go way out of order. Is the current uh, uptick in, in gas and oil prices going to help any? I mean, it ought to. It is. I mean, it, it, it's it's helping overall the companies, but this is becoming more an industry of, of consolidation. And so a lot of the small guys are, are you know, pretty much wrapped up and folded up. And so the, the larger players are going to continue to be, lar you know, grow and, and, and continue on. So it's, it's going to help things out a little bit. But the overall, like I said, you know, we're, we're still north of 30% in vacancy downtown here. There's there's lots of folks still not working. So it's going to take some time to, to really heal. I mean, a real big part of it, Nathan, is, is just the, the transition. You know, obviously, uh, you know, we need to do other things and, and do them quick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I hear what you're saying. You know, uh, I'll go back to your childhood. You talked about uh, camping and fishing in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, I did too. I loved the Rocky Mountains. For me, it was Colorado. For you, it was uh, uh, Alberta. Yeah. Uh, but I would go there, and we would ski, and we would go on uh, two week, uh, you know, week or two week camping trips. Uh, I was very active in the Boy Scouts growing up, so it sounds like uh, I did some of the many many activities, or some of the same activities that uh, uh, that uh, typified your childhood, which is uh, good to hear. Yeah. So, what is it that brought you to the energy sector? Is it something you always knew you wanted to work in, or was it just because you were growing up in Alberta, so it made sense that you would uh, go into oil? 
Well, my childhood dream was always to become a commercial pilot. And actually, I took flying lessons when I was 16. But hmm. my last year of high school, you know, the Alberta oil sector was booming because of the Iranian revolution and, and that corresponding uh, oil crisis in, the, in 1979. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of excitement in Calgary because of that. And, and I decided to park my flying career and, and pursued engineering. So I started with Chevron supervising drilling rigs in 1986. And where was that? Where were you based? I was based out of Calgary, but but uh, you would spend. It, it was the old days of uh, it wasn't twenty twenty eight or whatever. I mean, you, you when the ground froze in October, you're out in the field and and you were there pretty much till about March. So it was okay if, if you were young and, and single. The married guys had a little bit more of a struggle with it, but uh, you know it was a lifestyle, and you got to learn lots in a hurry. So it was it was a good experience, really good experience. So in the 1980s, you were still based in Alberta. What was your first international assignment, and with whom were you working at the time? Well, it was always Chevron, and and um, started out working on a rotational basis in Africa, and and came home, and we ended up getting moved to San Francisco, which was Chevron's uh, headquarters, and you know we used to call that area we're in uh, the uh, San Ramon Valley uh, in San Ramon. It was called we called it the Smurf Valley because the sun shone every day, and, <laughs> and you're you know you're you're just south of uh, you're just south of uh, Napa Valley, so it was really convenient. Uh, so it was a great place, a uh, great place to be. I can understand why, you know, there's uh, the population of Canada uh, fits into California. There's 40 million people in California. You can understand why. It's fabulous. But yeah, we, we we talked with the governor of California when he spoke at the Far Eastern Economic Forum that the GDP of Russia fits into the GDP of California as well. So yeah. <laughs> that's an interesting statistic. <laughs> No, we started out in California, and, and while I was there, I was involved in a project in Angola. We'd made a discovery in 1,500 feet of water, which in, in the mid-1990s, that was considered to be, you know, very deep water. And uh, management decided that we needed to move 25 families to Luanda, Angola, to, to demonstrate to the government that we were deep water experts. And it also happened to be around the time when there was a deeper water licensing round going on, so we wanted to have a presence. So. I was assigned as part of a transition team charged putting together the A-team and, and uh, actually it was my first introduction to one of many management type skills and you know, I called it the three no rule. You know, if, if you allow me, I'll give you an example of, of the three no rule. What is the three no rule? That's my next question. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I came home from an afternoon at work and explained to my wife we had this exciting pioneer you know, opportunity in Angola. And, and so it kind of went like this. I said, you know, we've got this great opportunity, honey. Uh, we can move overseas and see some really cool stuff in Luanda, Angola. And, and I get to put a check mark in my international experience column. And, you know, she said to me, well, isn't there a, still a civil war going on there? Like it's been going on since 75. <laughs> I, I was, I had to ask that question, but go ahead and comment. Yes. <laughs> and um, I said, yeah, well, you know, but the government forces in Luanda have the place secure and no signs of the rebels. And, and, and oh, by the way, you can buy an AK-47 for 12 bucks at the market. And so, <laughs> well, isn't that comforting? <laughs> yeah. It was actually fun to shoot. <laughs> oh, good Lord. And, and she said, you know, well, would we live in a compound? I said, oh, honey, you know, there, there's no time to build a compound. We need to have families over there as soon as possible. We're in the process of renting and refurbishing some cozy homes scattered throughout the city. And and really cozy turned out to be about 1,000 square foot homes with a single pane glass window that, that I'll never forget. <laughs> so That's cozy, yes. <laughs> Very. <laughs> didn't quite have her there. And, and so, you know, she's asked, well, where would our daughter go to kindergarten? I said, well, we're going to convert a couple houses into a school and, and we'll bring South African educators in. So, you know, it'll be ready in September, worst case, October. So we got the school. And her next question to me was, well, 
isn't there a lot of malaria in that part of the world? And I said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, we're hiring some tropical doctors who have a lot of experience and a lot of practice treating malaria. So that, yeah, it really shouldn't be an issue. <laughs> and then her last question to me was, <laughs> do you are remember? You totally, are you totally deranged? <laughs> you was that her last question? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it was more like, do you remember we also have a four-month-old daughter? And I said, yeah, but it's great because she'll learn to speak Portuguese at a very really early age. It'll be great. And so... Yeah, I'm sure you understand what the wife's answer was. It was, well, no, we're definitely not going there. And what I learned with the three no rule is, is people sometimes say no too quickly because uh -huh. a lot of times it's the easiest answer. Of course. And so what you have to do is ask the same question three different ways. And if the answer is still no by the third try, then probably then the answer is no. And so obviously after a few more attempts and, and using the three no rule skillfully, you know, we were packing a shipping container and, and heading across the Atlantic. And by the way, I'm still actually happily married uh, to my wife this day. We're now plus 30 years. So uh, <laughs> that, that, that was my next question. And did your child survive? <laughs> Both of them did. I, yeah. Yeah. I think we're showing disrespect to the Angolan people because it's my understanding that it's a wonderful place to live these days. It's, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, calmed down quite a bit since the turmoil of the 1970s. Am I right? You are wonderful, wonderful people. I mean, the one thing that hasn't changed in, in you know, the 25 years since we've lived there is, is it's still the most expensive place on earth to live. Oh, is so it? Very, Lord. very, very, very expensive. Back then we were paying for these thousand square foot mansions, you know, we were paying about six to 8,000 US a month. And we had to put $200,000 into each of the houses to, to uh, renovate them, you know, so they could have three bedrooms and two bathrooms in them. And, and to this day, I mean, I have some, some Chevron friends still living there, and, and it hasn't really evolved a whole bunch more. It's a, it's a very expensive city to work, but you're right on the coast. And, and you know, my God, if, 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 if people ever want to go someplace that, that, that's fishing, Angola is, is the place. Uh, while I was there, we caught 22 marlin. Uh, you know, we got good enough early on to be able to just catch the fish, tag it, and release it, let it go. You know, the first fish, I think, took us seven or eight hours to catch and, and we were down to about 45 minutes by the end, but it's just world-class sport fishing. Dolphins. Marlins. Very nice. Very nice. Oh, un unbelievable. See, I uh, visited Namibia and I tell people to this day, it's my stock answer when they say, what was your favorite vacation in your entire life? And the answer is Namibia. Uh, and as you know, it's just below Angola. Uh, and we had some of the similar experiences, uh, deep sea fishing, the, 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 the dolphins that accompany your, your boat that, that uh, jump out of the water just because they like uh, jumping around with boats, uh, seeing penguins uh, and desert all in the same landscape. Uh, I know these are things you can, you can see in Angola as well, but uh, I enjoyed Southwest Africa very much. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That, and I don't know if you ever got to see a safari, but seeing the big five—the elephant, water buffalo, leopard, lion, and rhino—I mean, those are those are those are memories you just never. Those lose. are lovely. Yes. Okay, that was interesting and fun. Where did you go after Angola? After that, we, we headed into Indonesia. Actually, so we're on the island of Sumatra. We were there for <clears throat> about three years, and true to my form, we were all well, you know. The I guess the the one disease we did catch in in Angola was the expat flu because really enjoyed the the our time there the just the the closeness you get with with families and and the camaraderie that gets built and so we moved on to Indonesia for three years and and unfortunately that we got there and about two weeks later the Bali bombing happened uh, which which kind of rattled a few oh, people oh I remember that good lord in a disco yeah, there yes yes exactly right that would have been ten fifteen years ago when was that yeah that that happened uh, the Bali bombing was two thousand and two. So we're, oh, we're good coming Lord. 20 years, yeah. 
Good uh, Lord. No long time ago. How time flies. But but boy, you talk about a, a calm people in the world because, you know, it was all hyped up uh, eight months later, the U.S. and all the, you know, went in, went in and, and uh, the war started in, in the Middle East. And so it was all this very, very anti-Muslim concern and, you know, uh, World's largest Muslim population resides in, in Indonesia, and, and my in Indonesia, God, yes. just the, the the calmness of the people, the food. You know, once again, the travel. We went down through the Spice Islands. You know, saw Komodo dragons. Uh, went as far as a place called Flores Island, where they have these big vol. There's one big volcano. It's actually one of the wonders of the world. Uh, you get to you hike to the top of the volcano, and there, there's three separate lakes in there with three different colors. So it's one volcano, but three separate water sources one's green one's coffee and one one's kind of a reddish color it's it's really something to see oh fabulous fabulous well this is turning into quite a quite a travelogue here don yeah i didn't mean (laughs) to i mean (laughs) judging from your biography you hit about uh, six countries before you you made it to kazakhstan i I saw nigeria there i saw uh, yeah uh, in indonesia uh, and some others, uh, you know, is there anything that you want to say about any of the other countries before we skip to Central Asia? Because I'm, I'm sure interested in hearing about how you made it to Kazakhstan and what are your impressions of that country? Well, you know, I, I think all countries have their, their, their little unique opportunities. You know, we, we spent three years living in Nigeria. That was more of a controlled situation because it was a compound. It was very well established. So not quite the pioneering standpoint. Uh, you know, our daughters were going to school then as well. The school was, was, uh, 12, you know, 20 kilometers from the compound and, and they'd have to get up at 5.30 in the morning because the, the traffic caused about a two-hour bus ride both ways every day. So uh, a little hairier, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, quite a quite a, an experience there as well. Oh, good luck. Actually transitioned from from um, um, Nigeria. That's, that's when myself and a, and a number of other uh, Chevron, ex-Chevron folks decided to start up Condor. And and so we wanted to grow some roots back in North America and in Calgary, came back to Calgary and, and started up uh, the Condor company. And, and that focus took us to Kazakhstan. And so that's when we started off in Kazakhstan. Okay, I'm going to show my ignorance. For me, an oil company is somebody that found uh, a, a reserve uh, a deposit and they went and, and developed it. It was Is it that simple that you heard about some oil in Kazakhstan and you decided to go develop it? Did you get licensed there? Tell me the, the story. What what? Why and how was Condor founded as a company? Well, you know, the the, the, the three uh, founders of Condor, very interesting folks, uh, all uh, mining background. They all also actually worked together in West Africa. And, you know, two of them came back. The three of them decided they'd had enough of Africa. And, and so two came back to Canada. And this is a very interesting story. They, they purchased a gold mine in northern Quebec for $88,888. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, that asset was sold for $4.3 billion um, and built Canada's largest gold hang, mine. Hang on. I'm, I'm on my calculator here. Hang on. <laughs> that is a whopping return. No, they're, 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 they're very astute business people. Uh, they still are to this day. I mean, they, they've created several other countries and, and created a lot of wealth uh, for the country. Can you uh, let me in on some of that next time? I mean, I would have bought, you know, half of that $88,000 mine. Yeah, if yeah, you, if yeah. you told yeah, me about no. this. Well, we're, we're, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep our eyes and, and ears peeled and uh, you'll, you'll be my second call. 
Yeah. Any of that hundred thousand to four billion, that's that's the type of return I like. That's the that's yeah. the type of returns I shoot for in my investment business. Those are really healthy. So these guys uh, they, they started uh, the gold mine, but they also started out in Kazakhstan and, and really the draw to Kazakhstan for them was it, it reminded them a lot of Canada. Very large country with not a lot of population, very resource rich and, and underdeveloped. And and so uh, they applied for a couple of operating licenses there, got the licenses, they were awarded the licenses, uh, and then starting to put the team together. And that's where myself and, and my other ex-Chevron uh, folks came along and, and said, yeah, we can build a team for you. And and it is as easy as, as going finding oil and, and then, you know, being able to produce it. But uh, you know, unfortunately, it, it, there's a lot more work and, and, and it is a lot more painful. We, we invested probably $25 million initially in, in seismic data just to really characterize the area. Uh, and then you go through and you drill a bunch of wells, you, you make some discoveries. And, and Kazakhstan has quite a process still to this day on, on regulation. And so it took a lot of time to, to get the necessary approvals. Uh, but then you start producing, you know, and then you move forward with it. So, I mean, you've got to invest a lot in exploration. And my cousin, who was in this a little bit, said, "You know, you can d- dig this well and drill that well and drill that well, and at the end of the day, you might not, you might not find anything." I mean, there was that risk, or were you pretty sure that you were going to find some pretty rich reserves? Oh, we knew we were going to find something just just based on you know you've got these natural oil seeps at surface. You know that was that was the first hint that the oil is you know go go look for oil where the oil is and and to see it at surface and see it I don't know how it had migrated up, you, you just have to find where the traps are and so that's where things like three D seismic come in to help you understand subsurface where is it locked in place, so we did that and and um, but you know I mean your your cousin's exactly right you know you can drill ten wells before you find one discovery and so expiration ratios are usually you know one in one in eight to say one in twelve is is very common in the world. The, during the Soviet era, I mean, the, the, the Soviets did a fabulous job of finding all the, the very large oil fields. Kazakhstan has some of the world's largest. Uh, Chevron still has a, an oil field there that's 9 billion barrels. Uh, there's another recent dis- discovery called uh, Kashigan that was uh, brought online about eight or nine years ago. That's 13 billion barrels of oil. So there's a, a tremendous oil resource there. Interestingly enough, the, the country itself is now transitioning. They, they've made... Uh, They've agreed to a lot of the Paris uh, Climate Accords, and and they're really driving forward on on their capabilities to now transition from an oil environment, oil economy only, to you know to to others. And that's interesting because they say thirty or forty years from now uh, there won't be as much demand or almost no demand for oil. But hey, uh, there's a lot of time between now and then, isn't there? And and people need to drive cars. No, you need to drive cars, and and I think what you need to do is is approach it in a basically a transformational standpoint. You can't go from no oil to hydrogen. Yeah, you can generate hydrogen right now, but you can't do it economically, commercially, economically that way. You know, one of the technologies that, that, that actually Condor is now introducing into Kazakhstan is, is the first LNG production. And so we're, we're in the process of building a facility and we'll be displacing diesel. And so rather than diesel being used to power mine haul trucks and locomotives and the transport trucks, we'll be able to use LNG. You, you get, you know, a 30% reduction in your greenhouse gases. You get 100% reduction in your NOx emissions. And so overall, it, it's a step in the right direction. Last fall, Kazakhstan hosted the United Nations at a, at a conference, a two-day workshop in Almaty, and actually we presented our our plans for our our LNG facility at that time. And and you know they really got it in terms of understanding that you can't turn the gas off and and just yet. And I think even Europe has realized that you know even prior to the the 
the invasion earlier this year between Russia and the Ukraine that, you know, there has to be a transition. And I think a lot of the EU countries now are realizing that we can't let go of natural gas yet. We, you know, we still have to go through that transition. Yes, hydrogen will come along and there will be a time when hydrogen is economical and we could use it. Similar for electric vehicles. I mean, electric vehicles are definitely going to have their place, but the energy required right now to build an electric vehicle, you know, supersedes the the, the savings that you're making on on the tail end of it. So we're going to get better at all that stuff. Uh, I mean, the advancements recently in in um, the high temperature superconductor wires, uh, you know, that are being done in in North America right now are astonishing. They can carry 10 times the power that copper can. And so for making batteries and other things, there's, there's all sorts of new technologies, you know, in, in our backyard here that that'll be applied. Oh, wow. I hadn't heard that. That's that's very interesting. You know, I tell people that this is, uh, you know, the, 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 the oil economy today is maybe like the horse economy at the start of, start of the 20th century. Uh, yes, we all know horses will be obsolete, but in the year 1900, they ain't obsolete yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's okay. Uh, I agree fully with that. You know, it, it's just there. There just needs to be a transition time, and and, and that's coming. Obviously, I'm biased. I, I praise the the industry in Canada. Canada's got you know the best track record, I think, in terms of ethical oil and 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 just the environmental impact. You know, the the, the minimizing the environmental impact. I've seen that through my career. I mean, it started in 1986 in the oil field, and it, it was a different world. And you know, the cowboys needed to be reined in, and they have been reined in. But it's it there's there's going to be a transition. It has to you know it works and 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 it's coming. I mean it's pretty good. Now you talk about ethical oil, and I have to ask the question: Are you is Canada at a disadvantage vis-a-vis the rest of the world because Canada is ethical? Because Canada is is uh, self-regulating, is uh, uh, imposing on itself on its own producers uh, green requirements for all the right reasons. God God knows. Does that put Canada at a disadvantage economically to the rest of the world, or no? The entire world is doing it. What's what's your viewpoint there? Well, I think Canada is a, as a, at a disadvantage. I think the country could be stronger. You know, the the economy could be stronger. The resource is certainly here, and unfortunately, the resource is sitting in the ground. And you know, we're like like most countries, you you're blessed with with resources, whether they're minerals, whether they're oils whether it's a tourism business <laughs> but you've got something that you have to you have to monetize so you know you can you can fund those social programs you can fund the universities and and the schools the the medical systems you know that's the way you do it and we've just i think we've we've hesitated a little bit more we've been a little too critical on ourselves i also think that you know the the canadian oil industry itself was late in in really getting together and and you know providing a unified educated message to not only the world but the Canadians so that they better understood the situation and you know it, it is what it is and and you know the, the industry will continue to to rally like the wells aren't going to get shut in, in in North America but or in Canada but we we could definitely be producing more than we are we are currently producing you know Canada despite not being a landlocked country is somewhat treated like a landlocked country because <laughs> the reserves are trapped here uh, right now, and and so that that's uh, it's just unfortunate for all for all. But you know, we'll we'll figure out solutions. The human race is pretty smart, and I know they they stand up to the the challenges and the occasions, and and I believe that'll happen. Well, it's it's good what you've been able to create. Now, I want to talk to you about some of your personal impressions. You know, you've you've uh, have you lived for some time in Kazakhstan? And by the way, we haven't even touched on Uzbekistan. You're also active in Uzbekistan. Uh, I visited both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Uh, multiple times over the last 20 years. I love both countries to death. Tell us just about some of your cultural impressions from living there, from being there, from interacting with people. 
uh, away from the oil side. What can, what can you tell us about Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan? You know, Kazakhstan and, and, and Canada have a lot of a lot of similarities, as I said, just because of the resources and, and, and the size. I, I have often praised the, 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 the first uh, president of Kazakhstan. He did a very good job of having to, to manage, you know, the big gorilla to the north. And, and you've got a, another big country due east of you. And how do you manage all that? And, and very strategically brought in, you know, many of the, the super majors to develop the oil fields there. And that provided some stability. Uh, you know, just so that things could actually get developed. So it's only a country of 18, 18 million people, 18 and a half million people. You head to the southern part where we have our, our headquarters in Almaty. And I don't know if you've, you've traveled out west to, to Calgary, but just west of Calgary is a city called Canmore. And Almaty is a city of 1.2 million people, but it's it's identical to Canmore in that you're right up against the mountains. You know, you've got the lakes, you've got the rivers, you've got fishing, you've got uh, even a couple of nice golf courses. I was in Calgary only once and I loved it. I remember it was leap year day. I uh, can't tell you the year, but uh, I remember the beautiful mountains and the the, the stunning uh, backdrop. And I just thought this would be a wonderful place to live. The Kazakhs. And the Uzbeks actually, they both have a, they place a high degree of value on education, you know, and, and a willingness to learn. And, and so for a company, you know, a company like us moving in there, they actually really contribute uh, very much to us. Uh, you know, we found that, that that they're focused on family health and the well-being. That That's really important. And, and you know, we treat our employees as if they're family. And it goes a long way in terms of motivation. It goes a long way in their performance, like, like they're, both both nations are smart people because they really they, they really do value education and, and they want to learn. The, the the Kazakhs have particularly impressed me in, in the can do attitude. You know, I, I like people that, that can do. You might not know what the answer is today, you might not have a solution to the problem, but you know you'll get one and you you'll know you'll get there. And and, and I find that that prevalent throughout the, the folks we have working with us and it really helps us, you know, succeed in, in what we're trying to do. Well, I have tremendous respect for both peoples as well. The, the, the Kazakh people and the Uzbek people are very resourceful. Uh, they're dedicated and they're very true to their friends. You'll never find uh, a stronger friend uh, than, uh, than a, a, a person from Central Asia. Now, I know you're pumping oil in Kazakhstan. Are you pumping oil in Uzbekistan? It's my impression that that's kind of a new market for you and you're not yet set up there. Or tell me what's happening in Uzbekistan. Yeah, that is a new market. So we haven't set up. We've been in discussions uh, with the government to to uh, basically take over operatorship of, of some existing gas fields. Uh, and and the thought there is really just introduce some some Western technologies, some Western ideas, because there are some you know proven ways to skin the cat and then increase not only the the gas production because the country is actually at a deficit right now on gas, but also do it a little bit more environmentally responsible because there are some still you know former practices that, you know, I would have seen in the 80s uh, done in Canada and, and they're, they're still being done in Uzbekistan to this day. And so th- there's lots of opportunities to clean up and, and we actually hope to, to also, you know, once successful with LNG in, in Kazakhstan, you know, we could see that as, as another market as Uzbekistan has to import all of their diesel. They, they've, well, almost all of their diesel. They've only got one refinery and it's pretty limited. They don't have a lot of oil in the country. It's pretty much a gas nation. Now, educate me. Is LNG, I, I, I get the impression that LNG has to be pressurized and therefore it's more expensive to produce than diesel, or am I wrong on that? 
you're a little off on it. Just actually, liquefied natural gas is, is it's just cooled, and so if you cool it to minus 162 degrees Celsius, it, it becomes a liquid, and in that liquid state, the the pressure is like 20 psi. So it's actually very very low pressure, and and so there's really no environmental risk with it. Nothing blows up. It's not like you've got a, a pressurized bomb of, of of gas on on your vehicle. So you, you put energy in to, to liquefy it, and and then. You know, you can run you can run big things like these mine haul trucks or locomotives, both of which are being done in North America, very successfully. That's funny how you said it's not hard at all. You just have to de- you just have to decrease the temperature to minus one sixty two Celsius. Well, you have to blow on it a little bit and and maybe put some ice on it, and that'll get the temperature down there. Yeah. Well, there's there's that good old chemical engineering uh, theory, and and Jules Thompson, these two smart guys from the 1800s, figured out that if you you put a gas uh, across a choker or across an orifice, uh, it'll actually cool itself. And so we're using the technology that Condor is going to be employing is is actually technology that was developed by the uh, Department of Energy in the United States. And and so our partner in the U.S. has now owns that patent, and and we don't require any external refrigerants to to make the LNG. And that's that's our our little game up on that 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 gives us a little bit of a competitive advantage that is amazing i mean that that really astounds me you you don't use refrigerants you don't use freon or something to to decrease the temperature you just do it with uh with chemical with physical processes yes exactly just just going across very interesting and well there's there's some there's some neat things that have happened in the last couple of years and you know generally when we're talking to people and they say well connor you're you're too small of a company you'll you'll never be able to build an lng plant but they think conventional lng plants those the big ones like that want to get built off the west coast and the east coast of canada that take five to eight years to build and can cost anywhere from five to 15 billion dollars I know our first plant will be under $100 million uh, to construct. And I mean, it's small, it's modular, so it has a, a small footprint. The whole concept here is you can take LNG to the end user where it's, where it's needed to be used. When we hear about LNG right now and, and the U.S. taking LNG to, to Europe, say, to, to cover the, you know, the Russian shortfalls, those are massive plants that, that take a long time to build. And, and I mean, you then dependent on a, on a pipeline network to distribute that gas to the various places that it, the end user needs it at. With these modular, these small-scale LNG plants, you literally put them on the doorstep of, of where the end user is. Um, no pipeline needed. Or a small pipeline, a very small pipeline. And so, you know, we're, we're looking right now in Kazakhstan, and we, we've identified probably six places, six different cities where, where these, these can be installed and, you know, really start to gasify the country. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you're you're leading an energy revolution. You really are in Kazakhstan, aren't you? Well, it's just it's taking ideas from North America and just applying them somewhere else, and you know, just so we're excited about it. Good for you. Now, I'm again. I'm turning. I, I love this technical talk, but I'm going to turn back to the cultural talk. You are the honorary consul of Kazakhstan in Calgary or in Western or in Alberta. Uh, what is your title? And I and I'm going to ask you if you'd tell us a little bit about what that involves. Have you? Is it simply a title, and you have never done a damn thing since you got it, <laughs> or do you actually meet with people, or are you expected to comment on things? No, there's. Uh, yeah, no, it's. Um, I guess my my boss in that is is the uh, the ambassador of Kazakhstan to to Canada, and that's Ambassador Kamaldinov, and and he's a what a great guy, by the way. What a what a what a tremendous uh, politician dedicated to his country and to Canada. I, I have all the time in the world for him. I, I couldn't agree with you more. He's extremely proactive and, you know, he routinely seeks out new technologies and, you know, and, and, and say foreign directed investment as, as, you know, for Kazakhstan. 
you know, as an example, actually, and, and this is where he does put us to work as his honorary counsels. In December, he came out for a couple of days and we met with 14 Alberta-based companies over a couple of days and, you know, learned about the new latest technology developments in agriculture, uh, waste management, uh, education, water purification, and of course, oil and gas. You know, so it wasn't an oil and gas centric discussion at all, but it's the other ideas. The Kazakhs have a strong desire to learn about hydrogen, and there's a lot of good work being done in Western Canada on hydrogen development right now. So Ambassador Kamaldinov is 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 truly uh, uh, more than a patriarch. I mean, the the guy is, is is focused on bringing ideas, you know, to to the Kazakhs, and at the same time, you know, he's always looking for for things that in Kazakhstan, you know, what would help what would help in, in, in Canada. I can tell you one of the, you know, this wasn't Ambassador Kamaldinov involved with, but one of the, one of the milestones that my stomach appreciates every time was you know, 10 years ago, Kazakhstan was getting all of its beef from either Argentina or South Africa. So it was very expensive and it was okay. And, and literally over the last seven, eight years, 10,000 head of, of Canadian cattle from Alberta and Ontario have been moved into Kazakhstan. Now they've been bred there. Is that and, right? And you can, I mean, you go to the store, the local store in, in Almaty, you can buy a tenderloin for, for 12 to $14. So, and it's Canadian. It's Canadian beef. It's Canadian beef. You know, well, they, at least Canadian it, genetics, I guess. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, well, I mean, you look at the latitude and, and you know, the latitudes of Kazakhstan and, and, and uh, Kazakhstan and Canada are, are the same. You know, the 49th, 50th, 51, 52nd parallel. And so you, you can imagine from an agriculture business, you know, not only the, the cattle are growing up in the same conditions, but, you know, the, the growing conditions for wheat and, and all the rest are, are very, very similar. And, and so there's the ambassador puts a you know high degree of, of interest in, in Canadian agriculture ongoings and, you know, bringing those ideas into Kazakhstan. That's interesting. So rather than just be an oil and gas expert, uh, you've had to become a jack of all trades thanks to this uh, honorary consulship. It's always nice to learn new things. We're, we're getting to be older dogs, but uh, you, you can teach us a few tricks still. A few tricks you still got. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask, there was some unrest in the country. Uh, it certainly pales in comparison to, to the horrors that we see in, uh, in Russia and Ukraine today, but uh, that's a subject for another talk. There was unrest in Kazakhstan at the start of the year. How did that affect you? Did that uh, uh, cause you to, 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 to doubt the country, to slow down your investment plans? Or, or what, what, how did you read that? Um, you know, we, we see the targets of these events were largely directed towards the government and, and you know, had very little effect on, on the private sector. But, you know, the government's taken actions designed to manage the concerns and, and, and really mitigate future occurrences. They've, they've, they've introduced a lot of things very recently. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, it cost us three months on our on our project just because government approvals. The government was focused on restructuring the government and 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 moving forward from the learnings they they took from this event. We think it's actually going to be a very positive thing for the country, and and by no means has it uh, discouraged us from an investment standpoint. You know, it, it was highly unusual. We've operated in Kazakhstan 15 years now, and and you know we're going to continue with our long term investment strategy there. I'll tell you what, it I'm- doesn't. Oh, sorry, I cut you off, but I, I, I wanted to say I've been impressed with the Kazakh government's reaction to the protesters, which instead of lock them up and shut them down, uh, uh, was, okay, we need to change something. And uh, they have come out with, uh, with some serious reforms uh, as a result. It's almost uh, you know, the way protests are supposed to be handled, <laughs> the way it was all supposed to work. Uh, and of course, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's not 100% perfect, but I have been impressed with the government's response. Well, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, the president's made it very clear to all people that his is a government of listening, you know, and, and, and it's important to listen. And I think, 
you know, that, that resonates so well with me. One of the things that always bugged me when I was an expatriate uh, working overseas is, is, you know, some of the Westerners felt they had to be the smartest person in the room, uh, you know, and, and let everybody else know that. And, and really the host countries, there's always a lot of smart people in there. And, and what you have to do sometimes is just zip your lips and, and listen to folks because they have some really, really good ideas. And, and you know, the President Takayev is, is he's taken the position in Kazakhstan that we're going to be a listening government and, and you know we're, we're seeing that impact and you know I, I can see that you know with the, the major companies there the the Chevrons the Exxon Mobiles ENIs they continue to invest I mean Chevron just completed a 45 billion dollar upgrade to their Tengiz oil field and it's going to take production from 650,000 barrels a day to over 800,000 barrels a day. And they're just in the commissioning stage of that now. And, you know, so those are, those are still big areas where, where, you know, super majors or, or multi-Western conglomerates want to continue to invest in, and, you know. What a visionary you've been. I'm so proud. I have no reason to be proud because I had nothing to do with it, but I am proud of, of companies and entrepreneurs like you that see an opportunity, that uh, believe in Eurasia. Uh, they come to a, to a country that has uh, a fairly low level of investment vis-a-vis uh, many other countries in the world, and they believe in it, uh, and they build something, and that's just what you've done in Kazakhstan and what you appear to be doing in Uzbekistan. I, I take my hat off to you, sir. Oh, very much appreciated. That, that means a lot. Thanks, Nathan. I got to ask you, what made you a leader, in your opinion? In 30, we have these flash questions we end up with. Uh, 30, que- 30 seconds or less, what made you a leader? <laughs> Well, I've been very lucky to, to have an upbringing where you know, work ethic, integrity, and, and hum- humility were important traits and, and introduced at a, at a very early age. But, you know, realistically, by having the exposure to diverse environments and experiences, uh, multiple cultures, and, and the personnel that I've worked with, I mean, that, that really helps you see the bigger picture in multiple circumstances. And, and that's allowed my team and, and really our company to, to navigate the volatile waters in, in our industry. And I got to say, you know, the, the three no rule, we didn't talk about another one of my favorites, which is the three P, patience, perseverance, and persistence. I mean, th- those are those are key things, and I, I really think those have helped me make, a, make me a leader. Good for you. I, I heard you use the words integrity and humility. Boy, we don't hear those words uh, enough these days. Yeah. Let me tell you. Uh, and, and so what does the future hold for Don Strew? Do you, do you see yourself, uh, where do you see yourself 10 years from? Well, you know, in the, in the, in the near term, obviously, we want to continue leading the efforts and, and get our LNG projects going in, in Kazakhstan and then hopefully in, in Uzbekistan, you know, work there as well. We made a gas discovery last year in Turkey that needs to be praised and commercialized to work on that. Really, in the midterm, what I'd like to do is, is some non-work-related travel with my wife. We've been to a number of locations overseas. We're keen to travel more throughout Canada. It's funny, sometimes you don't take advantage of, of what you have in your own backyard. And, you know, as an example of that, you don't have to travel to Angola to catch a 400-kilogram fish. My my chief operating officer and myself did that a few years ago in, in Prince Edward Island. Every year, every September, the, the bluefin tuna come up from the, the Gulf of Mexico, and you can tag and release them there. And it's a wonderful experience uh, right here at our own home ground. So often we don't appreciate what we have, do we? No, exactly. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, living for for 30 years in Moscow, there are many places I didn't see, except when I had visitors. And when I had visitors, then I get out and see the museums and the parks and things. So so that that was a nice prod for me. Thank you so much, Don, for sharing with us your, your impressions, your experience. Uh, you've impressed me as a, an entrepreneur of great integrity, of a man, as a man of great vision. And I do wish you the very best in your projects and the very best to Condor Petroleum moving forward. 
Thanks so much, Nathan. Really appreciate the time and and you know, great work to you and, and hats off to Serba. It's 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 great to see you know a bunch of former diplomats and, and dignitaries with a lot of passion and a lot of on the ground experience really want to assist bilateral trade between Eurasia, the Eurasian countries, and Canada. And I, I think it's a fabulous organization. It's definitely got my full support. Well, thank you so much, Don. You're one of the founders. You know that's a reflection on you too. So good on you, brother. Well, I appreciate your kind words. We're, we are fit. We are, we live in challenging times. I can tell you that, but somehow we will, we will survive. Uh, we, we, the important thing is to stay true to our Canadian values, I think, and we will, uh, we will, uh, maneuver our way through whatever challenges, uh, the world may throw at us. So thank you for your kind words. Can do attitude, my friend. Now, we've been joined today by Mr. Don Strew, Honorary Consul of the Republic of Kazakhstan in Alberta, President, CEO, and Director of Condor Petroleum, and a member of Serba's National Board of Directors. Thank you so much, Don. Take care. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.